This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased to join us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're nearing the end of chapter 26. We're about to witness one of the more famous scenes from the Passion Narrative of Christ. It's a scene of failure and denial that should break our hearts. One of Jesus' closest followers, a man ready to take up arms just hours earlier, now pretends he doesn't even know Jesus. Peter's failure was predicted by Christ, and it's the kind of cowardice that should feel familiar, since most Christians have failed Jesus in this very same way. We'll see the triumph and redemption that comes Peter's way later, but we shouldn't miss this opportunity to avoid Peter's mistake and avoid the downward spiral of sin. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to the first part of today's message from Pastor Pierre. One of the most dangerous and deceptive slogans of our days is, quote, believe in yourself, unquote, in its variants, such as have faith in your own abilities or listen to your heart. These cultural aphorisms may work in a romantic comedy, perhaps, or in the locker room before a game. But Jesus teaches us the opposite. In fact, he commands, believe in God. Believe also in me, John 14, verse 1. And he doesn't mean by that that we should be skeptical of everybody else. Rather, he instructs his followers to redirect our confidence from self to Savior, primarily in a salvific sense. And by that, I mean our salvation and our sanctification, but especially in times of trouble. Paul confirms, for example, when he says in Philippians 3, verse 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that same truth is stated in poetic form in Psalms 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Now, we experience a head-on collision with reality when we take inventory of our own ability to control the uncontrollable, such as, for example, our own suffering or other people's decisions and reactions. And if we dwell on our own limitations, anxiety aggravates and heartbreak follows, unless we abandon confidence in self and embrace trust in the Savior. Now, Peter embodies that principle. A natural leader among the apostles, he received the metaphorical keys to the kingdom. In Matthew 16, verse 19, he saw the glorified Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Matthew 17. And besides witnessing miracles and even performing exorcisms, according to Matthew 10, along with the other disciples, he saw people fall to the ground at the words of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, John 18, verse 6. Perhaps all of this gave him a false sense of security in in immunity from moral failure. The proud apostle then articulated this misplaced assurance, perhaps at the height of his arrogance, when he contradicted Jesus publicly. You may remember this in Matthew 26, verse 35, after Jesus told him, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, Peter obviously struggled with spiritual pride his entire life, even after He saw the risen Lord, even after he was already a leader in the early church. In one occasion, God gave him a vision and instructed him to eat ceremonially unclean animals. And listen to his answer, Acts 10, verse 14. By no means, Lord. Can you think of anything more arrogant? 
than to say to the Lord, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Now, we are no less prone to rebellion, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus or regardless of our position in the church. We have defied divine orders, perhaps not as blatantly as Peter, and we continually experience the temptation to answer him when he instructs us how to live. By no means, Lord, I have a better plan. Now, Matthew describes the fall of this servant, our fellow disciple here, Peter, not too long after Peter swore unwavering allegiance to the Lord. But the purpose of Matthew here is not to embarrass his brother in Christ, but to show, obviously under divine inspiration, how much we identify with Peter, how much we identify with a troubled disciple here. Now, like Peter, we tend to default to our own limited strength and limited and short-sighted wisdom in moments of crisis. But thankfully, the scene we're going to read today does not picture ultimate failure, but one of the most gracious and glorious demonstrations of the restoration power of the gospel, the restoring power of God. So as we read the text here, keep in mind the same biblical truths that are evident throughout this whole chapter, chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew, the sovereignty of God, the obedience of Jesus, the reliability of Scripture, and also the sinfulness of man. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about how to get out of a downward spiral. And I call that downward spiral the downward spiral of spiritual pride, if we're ever caught in it. And in case you think you're immune from it, think again and follow along with me. Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. A very famous scene here, a very encouraging scene, because we're talking about the super apostle here, Peter, the man that is famous, again, for being impetuous and for, for speaking before he thinks. And again, his tongue came back to bite him. But first of all, we're looking at how we get out of the downward spiral that Peter found himself in, the spiral of spiritual pride. Let's uh, talk about the deception of the self-confident. That's one of the ways we can think about getting out of that spiral if we're ever caught in it, by calling our attention to the deception of the self-confident, verses 69 through 70. Now notice, first of all, the radical shift in Peter's behavior here from the previous scene or from the previous scenes the man who moments before was ready to take on a Roman cohort with a dagger, now panicked when a little girl challenged him. Now, what happened between Gethsemane and the courtyard? I'll tell you what happened. In the garden of Gethsemane, Peter saw the angel who strengthened Jesus. We're told that by Luke in Luke 22, verse 43, that an angel came and comforted and strengthened Jesus. Presumably, he reported this to the other disciples. Remember, Peter, along with two others, were within earshot of that prayer. So presumably, he would tell the others, by the way, that's how Matthew would know about it. And that scene would have boosted their confidence. 
Peter also knew that Christ had the authority to summon legions of angels, according to Matthew 26, verse 53. But it finally dawned on Peter that Jesus would actually follow through with his plan on being crucified for the sins of the world. Remember, this is not new information for Peter or the other disciples. It just occurred to them, he's really going to do that. And he finally panicked. Now, John gives us more details about this embarrassing moment in the life of one of his fellow apostles. He tells us that Peter was standing at the door outside, which means he followed the arresting mob. Remember that along with John. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, and that is John, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. That's John 18, verse 16. This servant girl here, this maid, immediately recognized the disciple, then singled him out and confronted him with the most honorable accusation someone could ever face. Have you ever thought about this? This is the most honorable accusation someone could ever make about you and about Peter here. To walk with Jesus. You are guilty of walking with Jesus. That is the accusation here. Now, the question then for us is this. How would your friends react if they knew you were a follower of Jesus? In case they don't know already, would they be shocked to find that out about you? Would they say, man, somehow I didn't picture you as a Christian? Or would they say, wow, I had no idea that you were a follower of Christ? Now, Peter had something going for him at least. And what he had going for him is that people knew he was a follower of Christ. There was no question about that. The problem for him is that he was embarrassed to admit, but people knew that he was a follower of Christ. But in a moment of weakness, the once brave disciple denied identification with his Lord. Perhaps it was the pejorative term that this servant girl used to refer to Jesus, the Galilean. Now, this was not an indication of a place of origin or a place of growing up. This was a mockery term. This was a term of disdain and mockery. And Peter rightfully concluded, if people hated Jesus, they will soon hate me and hate the people who walk with him. So, so much for that whole idea about being the greatest in the kingdom. You are now experiencing true identification with Christ. People hated him, therefore they're going to hate you. Perhaps he remembered. He remembered at that time those wise words in the upper room, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. John 15, verse 18. So the soon-to-be leader of the early church, therefore, had to learn what it meant to be publicly identified with Christ and the risks. He wasn't ready to endure hatred for the sake of his Lord, at least at that moment in his life. And that's what we're seeing here. That's the picture that Matthew wants us to see. But I want you to know here, church, that Peter had something else going for him. Again, we've touched on this before. He and John were the only ones that we know of that followed the arresting mob from a distance. You know, after the whole debacle when Peter cut off the ear of the servant and he heard a, a lecture from Jesus that said, put your sword away because you just committed attempted murder and the state has every right to take your life. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And don't you know, that I can, I can simply say the word and legions of angels will come to my rescue. So I don't need you, Peter. Put your sword away. At least he was following Christ from a distance. But because he and the other ten, again, would soon shepherd the second generation of disciples, the former fishermen needed to learn how to redirect his misplaced confidence. And that's the point here. This is a discipleship lesson for Peter. His confidence was in his flesh his confidence was in his ability to handle the dagger. And God needed to teach him, if you're going to lead my people, 
You need to know by example because need, people need to see from you what it means to trust completely in Christ. And he learned that lesson the hard way, in his case, by wallowing in self-confidence, which caused him to commit the sin of deception. I want you to see here. It's not just the fact that he's denying affiliation with Christ. He is lying to people. Now, he committed attempted murder a few moments before this, and now he's committing the sin of lying publicly. And again, lying to escape persecution. What's new? It runs in our human family. We know exactly what that is. We identify with that temptation. It's the, the lying to escape opposition, lying to escape or at least omitting details about our faith in order to escape adversity. Centuries before Peter, we have, for example, the example from Abraham who committed a similar sin. He deceived the people of a place called Gerar. That's in Genesis 20, verse 2. He told them that Sarah was his sister which was actually a half-truth. And church, a half-truth is a complete lie. The patriarch here did this because he was still learning to walk with God. So we understand. We identify with the heroes of the faith. None of them are perfect. That's one of the beauties of narrative, biblical narrative. We look at those lives and we say, well, I'm just like that man. I identify with the failures. I identify with the fear. I identify with the temptation here. But nevertheless, in case of Abraham, again, a result of his sin, he received a lecture on integrity from a pagan. Imagine that. Genesis 20, verse 9. The, the pagan king said, why would you commit that sin against us? Now, we share Abraham's and Peter's humanity and therefore the temptation to lean on our own understanding. In moments of crisis, we tend to come up with those clever plans to get out of a crisis, to get out of an uncomfortable situation, thinking that we can outsmart the situation. And like them, we constantly face similar moral dilemmas. And the moral dilemmas that we face are often, should I speak the entire truth? Should I tell the truth or should I lie? Should I omit details here? Speaking the truth may get us into trouble with people. But the question is, whose approval are we after? Or whom do we wish to honor? Do we wish to honor God? Do we wish to honor the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? Or do we wish to preserve our own safety. That's what Peter did. That was his dilemma. Here, back to the courtyard. He lied about his identification with Christ because he knew that from a human perspective, things were going from bad to worse. Things were deteriorating fast. His plan of greatness, his plan of ruling the world with Christ crumbled because he saw, well, wait a minute, Jesus is really going to be crucified here. His first denial happened before the preliminary hearing in the house of Annas in John 18, verses 12 to 24. Just to go back and understand the context here. The arresting mob took Jesus to the house of this guy first, Annas, because he was the high priest at the time. Matthew doesn't tell us that. He goes straight to the trial, the mock trial of Jesus, really, in the house of Caiaphas. But the first denial that we read here in the scene happens before that. And things were getting worse, and he sure hoped that people would leave him alone after that. Okay, they're after Jesus. I'm here observing. Leave me alone, kind of a thing. But like Peter, at that stage of his walk with God, believers who think that they can resist temptation without divine intervention are self-deceived. We cannot, church, we need to understand that we cannot deal with temptation on our own terms or based on our own strength, based on our own flesh, the Bible is very clear that we are to flee temptation. What are we doing trying to resist temptation? We are to run away. Leave the place. If you're in a situation that you're being tempted, turn off the TV. 
Throw the computer away. Break the cell phone. Be radical on the temptation that you face. Don't go to that place that will cause you to be tempted. Don't talk to that person that will cause you to be tempted, to be thinking thoughts that you're not supposed to have. We are self-deceived when we, we think, well, I, I, can, I can handle this. I, I, you know, it's just one time. You know, uh, it's okay to make that purchase. It's okay to look on this website here. It's not going to hurt anything. It's just, no one knows. No one needs to know. It's just one time. That's a mistake. The only place to go from there, unless we repent, is further down the spiral, the whirlwind of spiritual pride. I can handle this. No problem. I can end this anytime I want. Wrong answer. Number two, we talked about the deception of the self-confident. And again, we're talking about how to get out of the cyclone of spiritual pride. Now let's investigate the defiance of the self-sufficient. Verses 71 and 72. Now I want you to see here the progression, or I should say regression, in the life of Peter. First of all, he was deceived and he was deceiving everybody. Now he's defiant. It's not just a simple, innocent response to fear, denying Christ. No, now he's defiant. Why? Because he thinks he's self-sufficient. Now Peter's promise that he would never deny Christ came back to bite him. And Matthew describes his moment, uh, his movement actually, toward the gateway. And, and again, let's not miss the point here. The question is, was he trying to flee? Why was he going back to the gateway? He was allowed in, but now he's moving back to the gateway. Perhaps he wanted to distance himself from that one young maid who recognized him. But whatever he's planning to do here didn't work because somebody else spotted him. See, another girl said, no, wait a minute, you are one of them. You were one of those Christians. You were one of those followers of Christ. I know you. I recognize you. See, at least he had a good testimony. At least he's not a a secret agent of the Lord's army. And like the first, she stated the same accusation in a mocking tone. Again, let's not miss the mocking tone here in verse 71. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, identifying Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth is not necessarily an indication of where he was from. It's a, it's an expression of mockery, an expression of disdain. Can you hear the echo of Nathaniel's words to Philip years before this scene in John 1 verse 46? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, and we know exactly what that means because we may in conversation say, nothing good comes out of Portland or pick your place, Seattle or San Francisco. We, we may say things like that. You know, I I expect no less from fill in the blank. So identifying with Jesus the Nazarene in this context here, and even today meant to be considered the lowest of the low in that society. The prosecuting attorney, in Paul's case, according to Acts 24, expressed that same attitude here. Listen to his words, Acts 24 verse 5. This was when Paul was being tried before a guy by the name of Felix. This prosecuting attorney said this, Listen to the the tone of disdain here. We have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews and throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. See again here, identifying Christians with the sect of the Nazarenes. Christians as pests. This is a, a ringleader of that sect. Church, things haven't changed much. Followers of Jesus have been and will continue to be called cockroaches. Pests, considered rodents, a nuisance, the undesirables of society. If you are considered anything less by the world, be concerned. That's not a good thing. 
It is great if we are considered stirrers of dissension among the world because we're preaching the gospel. I love that. I love when people identify us as pests, ringleaders of this idea that Christ is the only way to the Father. What an honor. It's not good if people don't know that you are a troublemaker for the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's be sure that you're causing trouble because of your message, not because of your own obnoxiousness or, or personality. Those are two different things. Okay, We are the troublemakers who refuse to embrace the new morality. What a great honor, church. If you claim to be a Christian and you uphold biblical values, you are no good. According to the world in general... And in Western culture specifically, our faith is not essential or worth defending even. They say, our principles hinder progress, we're told, and exclude everyone who believes all paths lead to God. You mean you don't embrace inclusivity? No, we don't, because the Bible says only those who come to faith in Jesus Christ will make it to heaven. The gospel is not inclusive. It excludes everyone who thinks that they can get to heaven by any other means, by anyone else. The way we vote, according to our conscience and morals, confronts the sexual perversion of our day. Church, the social cost of affirming Christ was high during the time of Peter, and it's high today. It'll never change. Peter wasn't willing to pay that price in that season of his life, so he doubled down on his failure. And he compounded his sin of lying by now committing perjury. He swore he didn't know his Savior. He took an oath. He says, I swear I don't know this man. He's taking an oath saying, take me to task. I'm telling you the truth. I'm, I'm giving you an oath. So in the same night, a few moments apart, he committed attempted murder, lying, and now the sin of perjury. The problem for Peter is that more people suspected him. More people suspected he was a Christ follower. They ganged up on him. And they cornered him, really. In John chapter 28, verse 25, again, describing the same scene, we're told that people told Peter, you are not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. So he, it's not just a one deny. He kept saying it. He kept, he, he compounded his lie and not with an oath. So the walls were closing in and his one little lie ballooned into a web of deception. See how that works? He told one lie and now he's forced to tell other lies in order to sustain his first deception. In church, we know exactly how that works. This is a type of behavior that confirms that one little lie, one white lie, you know, or one half-truth, I'm just going to not be honest in this one little thing here. What damage can that cause? The problem is that one little lie usually demands several others for you to maintain the appearance of credibility. And before you know, you lose track of the lies you've told. I'll give you an example of that. A husband refuses to acknowledge that he has been overly friendly with his female co-worker. His wife's phone calls go unanswered during the day while he is in a seemingly innocent lunch with uh, this other woman who works with him. Inappropriate emotional connection develops, but instead of confessing and addressing his problem, he convinces himself that he has the situation under control. There's nothing going on here. The problem is, church, that hypothetical man here has already committed adultery in his heart, according to Matthew 5, verse 28. And if and when his wife or a concerned friend confronts him, he swears nothing is wrong, and he keeps swearing it. And he says nothing is happening. This is just a friendship, and it's only professional, and he well knows in his heart that it's not. 
He lies to cover up his adultery in the heart, which will soon materialize if it remains unaddressed. And if you think I'm giving you a rare example, you need to shadow me for a week or two and know that this is not a rare example. It happens all the time. I lost track of times I've told fellow men, brother, you're walking way too close to the edge. Quit it. Stop. That level of intimacy belongs to your wife alone. And I'm not talking about physical intimacy. I'm talking about innocent conversations, humorous, flirtatious comments. You want to avoid the appearance of evil. I call this the defiance of the self-sufficient. I got this under control. I, I can end this at any time. There's nothing wrong here. But church, listen, God commends us to refrain from lying. Leviticus 19, verse 11, we are not to tell any lies at any moment. Furthermore, the church is the pillar of truth. Remember, 1 Timothy 3, 15, we are the pillar of truth. If anything other or less than the whole truth comes out of our mouths, we dishonor the character of our Savior, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Him. John 14, verse 6. So how can we claim that we follow the one who is the truth when we're not 100% committed to the truth? We'll pick it up here next week. If you have questions or comments, though, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org, or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.